Ladies and gentlemen, we are back in the No Property Podcast. First week of October. First week of spring. Spring has sprung, my friend. Spring has sprung. Yes, it is. If the river doesn't flood again, it's... uh, (laughs) How many times will that be? Um... How many times will it be? It's four times in the last two years, but only um, three times since I've owned the property on uh, on the river. <laughs> anyway, long-term view, we, we say. Uh, mate, bit to cover off uh, off this episode. Uh, I think we're going to make it quite relevant to what's happening in, uh, in today's yeah. market as opposed to a high-level discussion on strategy and, and things that can happen. Um, so mate, let's, let's not waste too much time. Let's, let's dive straight on in. Perfect. All right. Rock and roll. As everyone should be aware by now, interest rates have gone up. The RBA has announced a further increase in the cash rate of a quarter of a percent, uh, making the official cash rate 2.6%. Mate, there we go. And the last time interest rates were this high was 2013. They were slightly higher at 2.75%. Spot on back in uh, July. Yeah. So... Um, you know, we're talking sort of nine years on from that time. Um, you know, since then, that's generally been a, an interest rate that's trended downwards, not upwards. There's been some mm. increases and decreases in that time, but overall, they've been trending downwards. Um, and, mate, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, when the, the cash rate is sitting at a, at a level that is, in the RBA's eyes, enough. Um, but look, I think overall, to 2.6% is still incredibly low. Um, in relativity to, you know, the, 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 the money you can make from carrying debt. Mm, mate, exactly right. And I think, um, you know, we we're talking about this last night, how the fact that the assessment rate when a bank views your debt or your serviceability, they'll add a 2.5% buffer to the current interest rate. And the basically the cash rate now is at a level as what your assessment rate was at before rates started rising. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, if interest rates were 2%, for example, the bank would add a 2.5% buffer to that, so they'd assess you at 4.5%, uh, which is essentially what the average variable loan is at the moment. It's sitting somewhere in that vicinity of, you know, 43 to 4.8%. Yeah. Um, so as we move above this level, you know, we're essentially we're in uncharted territories for people who got finance over the last couple of years, you know. I remember when I bought my first property, I think the rates were, you know, circa 5%. I think same with me as well. Yeah, which was like 20, 20, what year is it now? 2015 is when I would have bought my first property there, thereabouts. So anyway, it is what it is. Not, nothing, to, uh, nothing to get caught up about, but I think it's, uh, it's good to know that, you know, mm. interest rates are at a level now that they haven't been at for, for nine or so years. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what we're seeing now off the back of the interest rate rise is the rental market showing a bit of strength and, and yields starting to come up as mm. there's upward pressure on rental prices uh, as people start to shy away from lending. But something that I found quite interesting, you know, with the way the market is progressing, particularly looking at the auction clearance rates as there were from last weekend, is the last year's auction clearance rates this time last year were around 83%. This is in Sydney. In Sydney. Yeah. And they now come to about 57%. So quite a, a difference if we compare the two from a numerical standpoint. But what um, we're seeing now is that it's now presenting, you know, a decrease in demand is creating opportunity for investors or those who want to capitalize on, on the marketplace. 
Yeah. And I, you know, 57% still means six of every 10 properties that go to market are selling, right? And the four that probably aren't selling are four shit properties that, you know, uh, are not priced correctly anyway. So I still think six of 10 selling is quite good. You know, if you look at it um, in comparison to 80%, it's not that great. But I think when you've got eight of 10 properties selling, um, you know, there's a bit of garbage in there. Mm. But if you look into the micro of, you know, the 60%, the properties that are selling are still selling quite well and they're good quality properties. You know, like if you're chasing a good quality asset and you're looking for the right property as opposed to looking for a bargain, they're still not, you know, still not cheap. You know, you've still got competitive people. We're going to an auction this afternoon for a property, which I think will have quite a few buyers mm. at it. Um, and it's a, it's, it's priced right. It's in a good suburb. It's, it's a good price point to get into that suburb. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not as strong as it was back in this time, 2021. And if we look forward another 12 months, I think the numbers probably won't be, you know, as, as great either. Um, but overall, not nothing again to, to be significantly worried about. And I think like what you said is completely right. It's, it's looking at today's um, environment as an opportunity, you know, instead of getting, having to compete with four or five buyers on mm. a particular property, you only have to compete with one or two. That's a good thing. Um, so, you know, we're still buying and we're still seeing opportunity. And uh, I think the people who take advantage of it now before it starts to lift and, and, you know, you start competing with everyone else are the people who see the strongest amount of growth, right? Because a lot of people did quite well um, over the last two or three years, but the people who did the best were the people who were in the market from day one. They were in the market from, you know, before COVID. You know, they bought in 2018, 2019 before COVID hit Mm. and they felt the full upswing of the market. And we looked at a property... um, we looked at a property last night. I did a TikTok video on it that we bought for a client in um, in early 2020. And, you know, it was around, around when COVID hit, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, we paid five fifteen for that property and they felt the full upswing of the market from then until now, so two years. And that property just got revalued by ANZ at 750000 which is a 50% increase. That's massive. Um, on what they bought it for but what's even more incredible is to buy that property because they were first time buyers or first time investors whatever you want to call them they took advantage of the first time buyer incentive they bought it with twenty five thousand, no lenders mortgage insurance no stamp duty so essentially what's happened is they've turned that twenty five thousand dollars plus some holding costs along the way into two hundred and thirty five thousand dollars of tax-free capital growth which is you know, an eight to 900% ROI on their cash invested, which to put into context is like investing in, you know, a company or, or, or Bitcoin mm. and having the value of that go up by nine times. That's crazy. You know, which is... What, what was their current debt on that when they bought it? Uh, well, so they put 25,000 ish in, 515 um, was the purchase price. So they're probably sitting at like a 480, 490. So right, um, they could pull their, you know, what you would do in that situation now, if you have the service abilities, you'd refinance up to 80% LVR, mm. making your new debt from 480 to you know, 480 to 600. Yeah, that's right. So they're pulling out about 120,000, which is what we're doing. And they're buying again. Um, and, you know, the timing, they've, 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 Perfect timing. you know, timing, timing is right. They've, they've taken advantage of valuation, valuations, you know, based on properties that have sold in a good market, they've mm. got a good value on their property. They're releasing equity and then buying into a market, which isn't as strong as the valuation that they got. Um, 
you know, with 120 grand, they can go and buy another $600,000 property if they want to use a 20% deposit or they can spend a little bit more if they're willing to pay a little bit of lender's mortgage insurance. Um, you know, and, and, and that's how you continue to grow a portfolio, right? And in two or three or four years time, they'll have two properties that have grown in that time and they'll be able to refinance both and be able to go again. Um, and that probably leads us on to our next topic, right? The, the thing that these clients, in, for example, are going to face or are going to face probably on the next property is the serviceability issue, which is like we've got two properties now. We've got you know a million bucks worth of debt or thereabouts. Um, we rent re rent the property where we live. We've got a good lifestyle, and the bank says, "Sorry, we're not lending you any more money." Mm. And then you have to start thinking about ways on how you're going to to get that serviceability. Um, and we had another client recently, you know, who we're going through the process with at the moment. And, you know, they've got serviceability, but, you know, it's interesting to see what they could potentially do to dramatically increase that serviceability, right? So let's, um, let's chat through that awesome. scenario. So <clears throat> we had an example this week where our clients have a few different loans outside of their home loan. So they've got caravan debt, which sits around 6.9%. And the value of that, that's around 25 grand. There's also a hex debt sitting in there as well. Um, but effectively, it came down to the decision of us if we were to refinance and pay out their car, the caravan debt and the hex debt, our loan amount would increase from 700000 to 800000 to quite a, a significant jump, right? Mm, about 15% of the property value. Exactly right. And, and the question was, Dan, should we pay out the caravan debt, which we only had say four or five years left to pay off and or do we hold that caravan debt separate to the home loan um, and take a shorter loan amount so the when we looked at the the numbers effectively the interest rate that would be taking on for an interest only loan would be around four five percent the rental yield of buying an asset would be around four percent which gives them a gap of one percent so <clears throat> the calculation we looked at was Okay, if we have $25,000 worth of caravan debt, that's going to cost us about 250000 with the 1% gap if we were to pay that using a home loan. So pay it off over 30 years pay as opposed off, to paying it off over four, five years. Yeah, five, five years. years. Now, if they pay it off over five years, then they'll have no debt in, in five years as opposed to having 30 years. Well, then they've got that debt for ages. And if they do interest only, they're effectively never paying down the principal. However, for them to only pay $250 extra per annum, um, what's that it is enabled them to do is buy a property that's worth 800 grand, which grows a lot more than buying a property which is worth, say, 700 grand. And if we're buying in an area which achieves circa an, an 8% um, capital, capital growth. growth rate, you know, 8% on 800,000 is 64K versus, say, 8% on 700,000 which is 56 grand. So they're making just on their money alone, $8,000 extra from being able to buy an $800,000 property. And that compounds over time. So the next year, if it grows at 8%, you're growing at a larger number. And that, that compounding over the 10 or 20 year period is, uh, is a lot. Yeah, and, and you know, I think trying to, <coughs> trying to eliminate as much of that in quotation much personal debt as possible and tying it up into equity, I think is is a no-brainer and it's something that I personally do. Um, because look, you can make the same repayments. 
because on a car, I'm not sure what their, their their debt is or the interest rate is on on caravan debt or interest rate is on cars, but usually you're paying more than what mm. you would pay for a for a you know home loan. So if you're paying a smaller amount of interest or a smaller interest rate, and you pay the same repayments that you would have if you were paying it off over five years, you're going to pay it off much faster because you're paying a smaller interest component. Um, or if you would rather use that cash flow, you know, make the the, the caravan than a thirty year loan. And the reality is you're probably not going to pay it off over 30 years anyway because you own a caravan or you own a car for five or six years. You've probably paid down enough of the principal. Um, so when you sell it, you would use that cash to pay off the loan and then get a new car. Hmm. You know, so. Um, but if you were just going to pay it off over the 30 years, it would make more sense to use that extra cash flow that you would free up than to service more debt that is um, productive or, or, or good debt as people call it, which is obviously debt that grows in value. Um, but it, it's interesting to see, you know, if you shut down, so it was the hex of how much roughly? Hex debt, I think was around similar to the 20 grand mark. Yeah, so 20 grand of hex, 20 grand of, of uh, or 25 grand of caravan debt. So 45,000 of other debt. Mm. If you got rid of that, it increases your good debt by 100,000. So you're yeah. doubling. You yeah, know, which, is, which is massive, right? Huge. So, and, and essentially what that's saying is you could then tie up. So let's just say you've got $50,000 of bad debt. And if you got rid of that bad debt, it would then open up $100,000 of good debt. So <clears throat> what you could do is is pay out those um, pay out those loans with equity. So you've still got the loans, but it's now tied up in equity. And then also free up $50,000 of equity that you can use to the uh, to the investment or to renovate or something like mm. that. And it's the same as credit cards, right? And, you know, shutting down credit cards. I think for every $1,000 of credit card limit you have is $10,000 of servicing that it takes up because regardless if you pay that debt off every month, the bank still looks at it as you have the capacity to spend that $1,000 if you wanted to. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think looking at personal personal debts and, 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 and debts that are not tied to an appreciating asset like property and being able to consolidate them um, is, is a really smart way to be able to increase your serviceability that probably not many people think about. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing that the clients had a bit of hesitation with at the time was like, look, Dan, if we were to pay these debts off and convert it to a new loan term of 30 years, they were like, do we ever get the chance to actually pay down that debt? And they're a bit apprehensive in, in terms of taking on more debt and, and increasing the loan term. Um, and it comes back to the, you know, the whole mindset we have around debt, which is you want to maximize the amount of good debt you have in the marketplace. Um, because what will happen with your portfolio is that the growth of the asset will outperform the, the debt. So you don't need to, in essence, pay off any of the principal as long as you're buying these good quality assets. Yeah. And you can you could still pay down the principal at the same rate you were paying it down when it was tied up as a caravan loan if you were really worried about never being never actually paying off the debt. So your repayments will remain the same and you just pay it off at a lower interest rate, like we were saying. Yeah. Um, so that that that's um that's super interesting and and you know, naturally, yeah, I'd probably if it was a fixed rate, for example, this is probably another thing to consider. If that was a fixed rate on the caravan and they were maybe paying three or four percent, but if they paid it out and put it into a home loan, they might be paying five percent now. Mm. That may actually work out better to keep it as a as a as a car loan or as a boat loan. Um, but again, it's all case by case, and it's just the scenario that you should, if you have something similar, you should probably look into that if you're looking to get some more borrowing. Yeah, definitely. And this kind of leads into the the next case that I wanted to share you know, based on their situation, let's say we had 800 grand 
to buy a property or 700,000 to buy a property, the question would become, do we sacrifice our location for bigger land size or do we have a bigger land size and sacrifice the location? So again, this it's, it's not about just land size and location, right? It's about the asset itself. So you could have really big land, but on a shit street, or you could have really small land, but on a really good street. And it's about land value over, over land content, you know? So if you can get a balance of the two, I think that's the most important thing because location will do a lot, but it's not the be all and end all. You know, you could have a really good quality property in a, in a location that is still classified as good, but maybe not, you know, as premium. And that property can outperform a property that's in the best suburb, but one of the poorest properties in that best suburb. Um, and if we're talking about a hundred thousand dollar gap, it's not a significant gap in price point, right? You're going to get a similar property. The eight hundred thousand dollar property might just be a renovated property in the same pop suburb as opposed to an unrenovated property, or you might get your fifty or hundred square meters of land more. Mm. You know, so you know, if we're talking about seven hundred or one point four, significant difference there. If we're talking about seven hundred to eight hundred, I don't think it makes a huge difference in the way the asset's going to perform. But if we're looking at all things equal and we say, okay, would you prefer land size or would you prefer location? Um, I would prefer location. I would prefer to get a, a property in a better location that is of the land size that is the average or the median of that suburb than you know, a larger block of land that's maybe larger than the average block size in an area, but in, a, you know, in an inferior suburb or location. Um, so yeah, you, just, you need to be buying properties that are similar to the properties in the area, right? If the average land size in an area is 600 square meters and you buy something that's 250, don't know about that. But if you buy a block of land in a suburb with the average is 650 and you're buying a something that's 450 or 500, mm. so it's still smaller, um, but it's not going to make a significant difference or limit the buyer pool by a large amount. Yeah, for sure. Um, because it's funny, like in hindsight, when I look back on my property, the first one I bought, I sacrificed on location for the land size because I had the idea of I'm going to use it for future development. So for me, at that time, you know, having the capacity to manufacture my growth was appealing to me. But if I look back now, the reality is I haven't actually manufactured that growth between when I bought it and now. And if I was to have bought in a better location, my asset would have actually performed better and I would have a higher equity position in my property now, which I could then transfer into the next asset. So it's interesting because, you know, I was thinking about it this week that um, it's very easy for us to get caught up in buying assets where we think we can manufacture all this growth. But the reality is with the way life happens in time, most of the time we're not actually manufacturing the, or we don't have the actual surplus capital available to spend to manufacture that equity so it can put us behind the the eight ball in the short term versus you know trying to do a long-term approach um for sure with the asset. very few people you know i posted a thing on linkedin yes last night there's uh there's doers and there's gunners you know <laughs> and and essentially what that means is there's action takers and there's people who say they're gonna do things and I would say 80 to 90% of the world's population are gunners. We're going to do this and I'm going to do that. And, and they're going to do fuck all. Like that's the reality <laughs> of it. Um, and then there's the people who do things, who say things. And sure, they may not do every little thing that they say, but the far majority of what they say they do, they actually end up doing. Um, and the majority of people say like, oh, you yeah, will buy this and we'll develop it down the track or we'll you know renovate this property or we'll... 
And the reality is they never do it. You know, like you go three, because you buy the property and it was mm. such a big mission buying it. You're like, I just put tenants in there. Let's get some cash flow and we'll worry about it in two years time. And then in two years time, you have a kid or a fucking, you get a dog or you, you know, your priority now is no longer to buy property. It's to go overseas and it never happens. So the mm. property sits there in a similar position, like um, condition um, with the ability to do it, but you never do it. And if you don't do it, you actually don't maximize because, you know, the reality is if you were to do the work on that property, you probably would maximize the growth. But because you haven't done the work, the growth has underperformed something that you could have bought at the time in a better location as a more passive investment. Um, and that's the majority of people, you know, the mm. majority of people buy in areas where, oh, it's got the it's got the position, it's got the opportunity to subdivide or it's got the opportunity to build a dual lock or it's got the opportunity to um, acquire the block next door. It's a corner block or something like that. And, you know, you get 20 years down the track and they never... They never end up doing it, which you know makes the net return of that property much lower. Or they buy it, oh, going, oh, well, we, you know, we'd be able to sell it with the opportunity to do X or Y or Z. But opportunity means something, but it probably doesn't mean everything. Um, and that's why if you buy things, I believe that have development potential or that have renovation potential, like use them, use the potential of that property as soon mm. as you possibly can. Uh, because life will get in the way and then you won't end up doing it, you know, especially if it's an investment because what happens is you get tenants in the property, then you're like, oh, we can't fucking get tenants out. We'll wait for the end of the agreement. Then you're like, get to the end of the agreement, the time frame of their rental agreement coming to an end and your position don't align. So you go, oh, we'll just do another six months or another 12 months. And then, you know, it's just like, it just goes and <laughs> life gets away from you before you know it. You're 65 years old and mm. you've got a block of land that's never done anything and your tenants are still in there and you sell it. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's, it's interesting because that, you know, when we, I was looking at a lot of the questions from the Q&A coming through, people now are starting to become open-minded to buying apartments in boutique blocks. You know, they hear about the Henderson kind of method where you're talking about buying in a boutique area as opposed to just buying house and land because everyone is kind of shied away from the apartment space. Mm. Um, one thing people are kind of coming in quite strong with, with the questions at the moment is what types of apartments should they be focusing on? You know, some of the questions were, should we buy an apartment that has lifts in there? What are your thoughts on apartments with pools? Should we be buying stuff that um, we can renovate? Do we definitely need a car space with our apartment? So I wanted to spend some time... I think digesting the apartment kind of space and unpacking your thoughts on apartments versus house and land mm. and, you know, buying an apartment in a good location versus buying house and land, you know, what are you, what's your take on that? Well, I didn't buy my first Torrance title property until last year. Everything I had in my portfolio was strated apartments and, you know, I'm doing okay. So there's, there's nothing wrong with buying apartments. And my mentor, Chris Gray, only owns apartments and there's no Torrance title properties and you know, I don't know too many people who are sitting on a yacht in Europe every summer. So, <laughs> you know, it works good. So in a perfect world, like you want to be in a boutique block. And when we talk about boutique, it's like usually less than 12 to 15 apartments. Um, but in saying that, there's, there's you know, abbreviations to the to the rule. You know, one Barangaroo, which is the, the crown building, is a block of hundreds. And, you know, I'd argue to say that they're probably going to be some of the apartments that perform the best, you know. Um so there is a, a abbreviation to the rule, but I think um, you want to make sure that if you're a normal investor buying a normal property, you're in a boutique block, um, you're on a quiet street, the the outdoor space I think is very important. But again, a lot of areas where there's Art Deco blocks, Art Deco blocks don't have outdoor space because that's how they were built. You know, they have sunrooms. So 
again, you can buy a really nice Art Deco apartment that doesn't have outdoor space. I've got one of those. Um, or you can buy a, a normal 60s to 80s build that has a balcony or that has a courtyard. And a lot of people find that very important. Um, you know, car spaces, again, I've run an apartment without a car space. The first apartment that I bought didn't have a car space. Is it important? Yeah, it is. Have I ever had trouble renting it? No, I haven't. So um, again, perfect world, you'd ideally want parking. Again, budget's not going to allow you to not have parking. I'd probably choose the location of the block and the, and the floor plan of the apartment and sunlight over having a having a parking space. Um, renovation potential, again, I think it's awesome because you're not paying for someone else's renovation. You have the potential to do it if you want to do it. Um, naturally, it's going to be a little bit harder to renovate in, in apartment blocks if you follow the rules. You know, for someone like me, I probably wouldn't and I would just renovate it and worry about the you know <laughs> repercussions of that later. Um, but you know, you gotta go through approval mm. and, and usually you make these decisions before you buy it. You look at the bylaws, you look at if anyone else has done renovations, you look how open the block is to the to the renovations through the strata report. And if they're open to it, then it's a pretty safe bet that they're gonna be okay with yours because you've got the precedence from the other properties. But you know, if you can read in the strata report or in the bylaws where they're super against it, then you know, I'd probably rethink that. Um so they're probably the main the main things. And then also making sure that you're buying in an area where people want to live in apartments, you know? Like would I buy in a boutique block of apartments in in um you know, certain areas of Victoria and Queensland or anywhere around Australia that, you know, where the domination of properties is houses, probably not. Well, there was an example we had a client where an off market came up in Whitebridge in Newcastle. Mm. Um Cahiba, yeah. Yeah, oh sorry, Cahiba. Um, which was an example of where it's a dominant house or a Torrens title kind of marketplace and the idea of buying an apartment there didn't necessarily suit the, the suburb or the demographics. Yeah, exactly. And look, that's, I mean, over time you'll still do okay with that, but yeah, you, be, being one suburb over makes a significant difference. You know, like um, even just in the East here, like the apartments in Bondi perform very differently to apartments in Ramwick and they're two Ks away from each other. Mm. Um so they're the big things is, is making sure that the demographic want to live in it, making sure that, you know, ideally it's a two plus bed, not a one better because then you appeal to a larger demographic. You know, it's a very select buyer who wants to buy a one better and a very select friend who wants to live in a one better. I'm, I'm definitely a renter who would love a really nice one better. I wish people built more of them. Um, yeah, boutique block, ideally no lifts, gyms, pools, anything like that. Um, because Why it just increases your, your strata levies and it increases the ability for things to go wrong. You know, when an elevator shits itself, it's expensive. You have to replace them every 30 or 40 years. You know, you, with a swimming pool, they're okay, they're enjoyable, but if anything ever goes wrong with the swimming pool, they're expensive to fix and that, that cost comes on you. Um, and very few blocks actually have them, the older blocks. But again, would I not buy in a building that had an elevator? Um no, like I would buy in a building that had an elevator if it was the right building. You know, if the, the reason it had an elevator was because it was coming up from an underground car park or something like that, mm. um, then I would probably buy it because it's a you know very small uh, con as opposed to a pro. What uh, about in, in terms of strata costs? What do you think quarterly is, is a healthy or an over-the-top strata cost? Um, well, look, I think the normal range for a two better in in a block that we're talking about is probably going to sit somewhere between eight hundred to twelve hundred dollars per quarter. Um, you know, they they can go up to fifteen hundred. Some buildings are like two and a half grand. Some buildings are ten thousand. But I would say the average for a low maintenance block that, you know, they just essentially the levies are just covering the 
the management of the building, the insurances, the small amount of upkeep, you're probably looking at, yeah, you know, between four and 5,000 a year in strata levies. And just while we're on the topic of strata levies, something, one of the biggest misconceptions people have with levies and every time I post a video or, or post something about an apartment, you know, the comments you see are like, oh, what about when you take out the strata levies? And what about when you take out body corporate? And it's like, sure, like they are a fixed cost that you cannot avoid. But what about when you have to insure a freestanding house every year? And what about when your roof fucking gets damaged in a storm and you have to pay for that? Or what about when a window gets smashed and you've got to mm. fix that in your house? Or hooligans run past and fucking rip your letterbox out? Like all of that stuff <laughs> has to be fixed by the owner of a house. Whenever that happens inside of a strata complex, your levies pay for that. You don't have to then go fork mm. out more money. Um, you know, if, if you get storm damage or something, Strata worries about that because of the insurance you pay. So the 1200 is a fixed cost or 800 or whatever is a fixed cost and you have to pay it every quarter. But whenever anything happens, you know, the reason you pay that is because that's what it covers. It covers your insurances. It covers the management of the building. It covers the upkeep of the building. You know, when they look at Strata buildings, they do a 10-year capital expenditure plan, which essentially says over the next 10 years, we expect the upkeep on the building, which is done by a quantity surveyor, to cost us X amount of dollars. And then they break that down over 10 years and say, well, this is what it's going to cost us per year. And there's 10 lots in the building or 10 apartments in the building. So each part apartment has to contribute X amount to that. So you're essentially just, you know, prepaying future expense for the property. Whereas when you've got a house, um, you know, Frank, for example, the head of our investment, he owned a house in um, Brisbane and, you know, they had a big storm or something up there in the start of the year and a tree fell over and fucking smashed the garden shit and, you know, broke some parts of the house and, you know, you either have to claim insurance or you got to pay a a, a, um, a a premium to be able to, you know, claim it through insurance or you pay to get the tree ripped down yourself and mulched and then fix the shed. So, that, you know, there's four or five grand just bang off the cuff and there's one year's worth of strata for an apartment. So with a house, your expenses are lumpy in nature. You might have nothing for three years and then have a big expense or, you know, with strata, you pay them quarterly and you don't really have to worry too much. Um, until you have things like big special levies that come up, which again, it's the same as a house. Like you don't have any problems with a with a house until you need to replace the roof because the roof shit itself. It's the same with apartments. You have no issues with an apartment until you know you own an apartment by the beach. You used to have timber window frames and the weather's just slowly over time fucked them and then you got to replace them to aluminium or or something else. And naturally, that's a that's an expense you've got to cover with the rest of the building. So that's my take on apartments on strata apartments. Um, you know, it's easy. They're so mm. easy. Like you buy them and I never have to worry about a thing. Like it's just is what it is. I think some something, a big thing to watch out for too with apartments is um the, with obviously the fire safety. You know, a lot of the old buildings don't have the up, mm. updated fire safety. So, you know, sprinklers, doors that are self-closing, special rated doors. So if it, you know, catches fire, the flames can't come through the door. Um, Rising dam. Yeah, like a lot of lot of stuff comes in with the with the fire ratings, and it can cost a lot of money for a building gets audited, and you know they have to upgrade the building, um, and that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that they raise a special levy to do that. So usually, you want to make sure that a building has done that um, before you buy into it. Otherwise, expect that levy to come in the short to medium term. Hmm. How about in uh, in regards to sinking funds? Um, so sinking funds are part of your levies. So you have a, a, a sinking fund or the capital works fund, and then you have the admin fund. So usually your admin fund pays for things like the management of the building. So when there's an issue, someone calls them, um, pays for things like insurances. So your, you know, bot, uh, your building insurance every year, um, and any other admin costs associated with, uh, you know, council 
rates for the building as, as opposed to your own personal council rates. Um, and then your capital works fund or your sinking fund pays for all capital expenses outside of admin expenses, like I said, which is that 10 year plan that they build out. Um, and that's what that's for. So, you know, usually when you're doing a strata report, one of the two big things you look at is what are the cash balances for your admin fund and what are your cash balances for your sinking fund? Um, and then you can compare the cash balances to what they should be because when they do a capital expenditure fund, they go, this is what your cash balances should be at the end of every year. And you make sure they're, you know, similar in nature. You actually make sure that the works that they said they're going to do, they've actually been doing. You know, you, 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 you be a human being and you use your eye and you see how well kept the building is and whether there is going to be huge issues in the future or not. Um, you know, and if you do, what a lot of buildings do, which I don't completely understand why, is they run their admin fund at a deficit usually. So you might look at a strata report and then the capital works fund, they'll have a couple of hundred thousand dollars and in the admin fund, it'll be negative 20 grand. It's like they've borrowed money from the capital works fund into the admin fund. Um and a lot of buildings do that. And I don't Would it know. Would be for tax? I think it might be for tax. Uh, I don't think so because it's, it's the same. It's the same. It's a building, right? It's just an account. But the, I don't worry about what, how much money's in the admin and how much money's in the capital fund. It's just how much cash a bank that building has itself. Um, that's the most important thing. Um, but yeah, that's just something I find with a lot of strata reports I read. There's a lot of the time the admin fund runs at a deficit and the capital works fund is usually the one that has the most amount of money in. Hmm. So it's strange. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I'd say it'd be for tax for tax purposes. What um what are some of the red flags um you're seeing at the moment with you know, apartments, whether it be in Newcastle or in in the Sydney eastern suburbs? Um, so I think one of the big things that's happening to a lot of beachside suburbs is the levies to change windows and doors because buildings just get hammered by salt air, right? Like I. My building in Bar Beach, we did it probably three years ago. Absolute shit show. It was a pain in the ass. And it wasn't done correctly. So, you know, there's issues with the builder and stuff. But again, short-term pain for long-term gain. Um, but I think understanding the building that you're buying into, whether it's got timber windows or not, aluminium windows you ideally want because they you know, can withstand the weather, timber deteriorates over time. And it's a big cost when you have to replace windows. Um, the fire safety audits that happen and if your building is not fire rated then that's a big thing they put an order on the building and you've got to upgrade the building so that can come you know the, the click of a finger if you get audited and then they, they rate it that happens within 12 months you have to come up with the capital um, some other red flags you know in the Newcastle region you know that there's like a quite a lot of housing commission so um, buildings that are close by to housing commission, nothing against housing commission. I think it does it serve its purpose, but you know, future buyers don't really like that stuff. And if you don't, if you're not going to, you haven't got a long-term view, then you know, if you're buying it for 30 years, wouldn't be too worried about it. Cause in 30 years time, there's a high probability if they're not going to be there, but, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, that's a big thing. I like generally a housing commission are apartments and usually apartments are near apartments and, and that can happen. Um, and then just buying something that's so vanilla and, and cookie cutter, you know, I think is a, is a big no-no because it can, um, you know, you can have underperformance with assets like that. So, yeah, they're, they're probably the big red flags I would say is like making sure that your building is maintained well and you haven't got huge capital expenses coming up that you're not aware of. Mm. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, obviously the location of a block and, and then also the... Um, you know, the size of the block are the big ones. Cause you see a lot of people buy into apartment blocks that are huge. And that's when they usually, you know, lose out when they buy into big blocks with no scarcity to them. 
Yeah, and especially when you get someone who does a, a quick sale of divorce or something's popped up and they've sold the property to discount. Yeah, exactly, and that affects the value of yours. Um, and people out there looking for those kind of deals. Also, size is, is, is one as well. Like for you know, people who are buying apartments, there's there's naturally restrictions on location. So like where the block is located. So Zetland Waterloo, for example, in, in Sydney, a lot of banks put that on there red flag list because there's so many apartments there and they're all the fucking same you know which they see as a high high risk or usually you've got to put in lot higher deposits for those kind of properties um so you want to make sure you avoid those locations that are red flagged by the bank at all costs um and also having a minimum of 50 square meters that's right the size the size because at the end of the day the only person you want to impress is the bank because that's the person who revalues your property which Mm. allows you then to refinance and buy more property and, and and use the equity so you want to make sure you're a your property appeals to everything that the bank wants and the bank does not does not want small apartments because again you appeal to a small demographic which the bank sees as high risk so you know studios for example that are 30 or 40 square meters no no because you appeal to a small buyer demographic and it's not a great investment because you've got to put in a lot of cash so you usually want to be like 50 to 60 square meters plus um before i personally would touch it yeah fantastic um the last kind of question or there's two ones before we wrap up uh, ones a lot of people are kind of asking in about stamp duty protect they're hearing a lot of content now with the first home bias sc- schemes that's going on mm. um and then there's also changes to stamp duty in, within january can we talk a bit about what is stamp duty and how much do i need as a first home buyer so stamp duty is the is the, the the tax or the duty that you pay to the government when you buy a property it's transferred tax that's what it is but it's when um it's when a property is transferred or anything actually is transferred from one person's name to another you pay a tax you pay it with cars pay it with houses you pay it with a lot of other things um so every single state calculates it differently and every single state has different exemptions Um, i actually did a video on tiktok about this a couple of days ago around what certain states um offered so it's usually about four percent of the property value thereabouts for for stamp duty melbourne it's slightly higher stamp duty than it is in new south wales and and queensland's a little bit different as well um the new the new tax or or land tax cross stamp duty that's coming in for new south wales first home buyers from january 16 next year is that first home buyers will have the option to choose stamp duty which will be a once-off payment calculated just like it normally would be or they can choose a yearly land tax, which will be a much lower payment. And that's for purchases up to one and a half million dollars. So if you've got, you know, let's just say you've got a hundred grand saved as a deposit and your income never used to qualify for the old first home buyer incentive, more than 120 or 130 grand. Um, now you'll be able to qualify because there's no income cap. You can spend up to one and a half million. So if you've got 90 grand, you can put a 10% deposit down on a $900,000 property. And then instead of having to cop up another 4% for stamp duty, which would be, you know, circa 40 grand thereabouts, um, you can now choose the yearly land tax, which would be around about a thousand bucks a year. Yeah. And you'll pay that every single year you own the property. Mm-hmm.